Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tim Phillips. I'm president of Americans for Prosperity. Thank you for joining us, a grassroots activist from all 50 states across this great country of ours on a, a beautiful afternoon. I'm coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. I've been with our team, AFP and Libre and Concerned Vets, out here in the great American Southwest, working for freedom and prosperity. Thank you for being with us and for all you do. Uh, we've got a very special guest to talk about crucial issues in front of the United States Senate right now. Uh, to make that introduction, I'm joined by our great Americans for Prosperity State Director for North Carolina, Chris McCoy. Chris, take it away. Thanks, Tim. And thank you uh, for the opportunity to be on here with, uh, with you gentlemen. Um, our guest that we have today actually really probably doesn't need much of an introduction. Um, you know, we have Senator Tom Tillis. Um, he is our U.S. Senator for the great state of North Carolina. Previously, he was the Speaker of the House for North Carolina um, and is in his second term with us today. So, Senator Tillis, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Thank you, Chris. And uh, Tim, I'm going to be down almost in your neck of the woods tomorrow as I go do a border tour tomorrow evening and uh, Saturday. I'm guessing you're probably going to have a better time than I will. Well, I tell you what, uh, it looks like he, he might be having a better time uh, at this point. So, uh, listen, Senator Tillis, um, you know, we just passed a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, um, which obviously was a, a lot of money coming into the states, and a lot of it wasn't for specifically um, you know, COVID relief. With that being said, we're looking down the barrel of, of another uh, infrastructure bill that could be, I'm reading, uh, $3 billion. What, do you, what is your take on how that's going to impact um, you know, citizens here in North Carolina and then obviously the country as a whole? Well, only one exception. I wish that it was a $3 billion package, but they're talking about a $3 trillion package. It's amazing how uh, uh, trillion is the new billion. Um, but uh, look, I, I'm glad you called it a stimulus package because it was hardly a COVID relief package. Less than about 10% of the 1.9 trillion had anything to do with trying to recover from COVID. Uh, there are a number of things in that bill that disturb us, uh, but now it's a matter of law. And part of what we're gonna have to do is oversight uh, to identify you know, how it gets spent it and uh, probably identify a lot of, of mistakes along the way. And the infrastructure package, uh, you've got to give the Democrats credit. They're good at branding. They call this a COVID relief package. Only about 9% goes to COVID relief. They're calling it an infrastructure package, but what it is, it's a tax package that has a little bit of infrastructure in it. And it's not even clear to me how much of the uh, two to $3 trillion that are being batted around right now is actually going to go to infrastructure in, in the way that we see it. Um, we can see an increase of the, the uh, corporate tax rate to 28%. I question um, Secretary Yellen just uh, today. She seems to think that a 28% corporate tax rate for the United States is a great idea. I actually even asked her, did she feel like the reduction of the corporate tax during our Jobs and Tax Cuts Act had any uh, stimulative effect? And she said it was minor, but I, I can't imagine that most businesses consider it minor, particularly if they expected it to be out there in, in the out years. Uh, capital expenditures are going to suffer. The financial transaction tax uh, that they say is only being paid by banks is absolutely false. It's going to probably reduce the value of assets by 
eight and a half percent of individual investors in, in the coming years. Um, I think that this is nothing more than another um, marketing package for advancing a liberal agenda. And it is a tax agenda. And I don't really know. It'll be interesting to see if, if you call the COVID relief package, COVID relief package, and less than 10 percent of it was spent on COVID relief. We can assume that past this prologue and the infrastructure package will have some treatment for infrastructure. But my guess is it will far, fall below, far below half of what they would actually raise in taxes to fund it. Yeah, and you know, Senator, you make a great point. It's an ideological wish list that they're trying to mask uh, as COVID relief. And it's not that at all. And frankly, shame on them for, for doing that, for, for using a pandemic that has ravaged our country to, to frankly mask the worst boondoggle I've seen. And I've been doing this a, a good while now, working in grassroots efforts across this country. And I was impressed Senator Tillis, that every one of your Republican colleagues in the Senate voted no. Good for the caucus. I know the House Republicans did the same thing. They're doing the right thing for the country and for their states. And, and good for you guys, Senator, and being united on this issue. Yeah, Tim, it wasn't even close. I mean, we uh, I was one of the 10 Senate members that had the first official meeting with uh, uh, Vice Pre or President Biden. Um, and we tried to propose a package that was about $600 billion that if you assumed a worst case impact of COVID, then you could come up with a rational basis that maybe we needed to do it, but also put triggers in place to only even spend that appropriation if it proved to be necessary. Take a look at what we're doing now with the vaccine. We've got states that are opening up the vaccine to anybody over age 16 in, in the next few weeks. Uh, to have a program in place that even assumes the continued impact of COVID into July, August, September, October, didn't make sense. So we, we came in with that proposal, but it was never seriously taken. They were going to hit the $1.9 trillion number. And it was clear to me after coming out of that meeting that much of what they put out there was going to have no long-term stimulative value uh, and no direct nexus with COVID. And that's what happened. Yeah. Well, I, I know, at least I assume on this infrastructure, and I've used that in quotation marks, it's not that, but on this next spending and tax bill, are they going to try to use reconciliation again the way they did with the $1.9 trillion uh, boondoggle? Have they tipped their hand there yet, Senator? Do you have a feel for that yet? And folks watching, if you would maybe just explain you know, how that just the threshold of votes is different, but that's required. Right. Well, you know, a lot of people, when they, they hear about a budget being passed, it's not really a matter of law. It just sets the guidelines for something called reconciliation, the bill that's actually uh, generally sourced out of the House, comes to the Senate, and they, uh, it only requires 51 votes. And you're right, Tim, but let me tell you on this, uh, the COVID uh, relief package, air quotes, uh, it wasn't even close. There was no Republican that was seriously considering uh, voting for the bill. Uh, they're going to use the same process. Uh, they are not likely to get a single Republican vote. And uh, we're going to see a lot of things in it that have nothing to do with infrastructure. Well, let, let's take, for example, maybe it'll be Nancy Pelosi's subway in uh, uh, San Francisco. Uh, maybe it will be rail projects in states that, uh, uh, that are mismanaged and uh, do not have their own resources to kind of put towards or match up with federal dollars. I think you're going to see the same disproportionate flow of U.S. taxpayer dollars to New York, Michigan, 
California and a lot of the other states that got uh, just an incredible amount of disproportionately incredible amount of money to those states as a result of the COVID relief package. Chris? Yeah, I, I can appreciate that, Senator. I think, um, you know, I was talking to, a, uh, to an activist of ours and uh, he told me um, they don't want to California his North Carolina. So uh, you know, that that hits pretty pretty close to home with me there. Okay, I want to, if I can, switch a little bit here. Um, talk a little bit about the Pro Act that we're going to be um, seeing coming up and, and toward that. And you know, over the years in North Carolina, especially in the last you know the decade, uh, you know, from the time that you were Speaker of the House um, to now, we've experienced a a great economy. We um, it's recovered well and. We're in a good position. As far as the PRO Act coming in and the implications that that'll have, you know, again, in the country as a whole, but specifically North Carolina, can you just comment on where you think that's going to uh, land as far as our economy here? Uh, I think it's going to be devastating. If you take a look at things that we're doing to this country to, um, to damage our economic future, when you put the energy industry out of business, you unilaterally disarm and prevent yourself from being the world's energy superpower. One of the ways that we've been able to manage the cost of labor is through the right to work laws that we have in our states. One of the reasons why North Carolina was, I mean, they were failing when we came in in the majority, but one of the reasons why we could still hold our own is we were one of these states that had a decades old right to work law on the books. I wanted to make it constitutional. But the fact of the matter is what they want to do is make it a right to work nation. They want to put labor on the fast track to organize. Um, and I remember when I was having discussions about a possible constitutional amendment uh, for basically codifying a right to work law in the Constitution, um, you know, I, uh, I got uh, some pushback because the pushback on the other side was, well, this only affects big businesses. No way. Labor organizers are smart and they're ruthless. And what they will do is go after small to medium-sized businesses that may not have the resources to prevent organization. And then they will capture the larger businesses along the way. But they'll create that base and destroy it. That It will literally, I've had this discussion uh, on ag, ag labor, for example. Uh, I've had a lot of people here say, well, you, you say you need jobs and you may need guest worker programs, but if you just paid people $25 or $30 an hour, you'd have plenty of people uh, planting and harvesting tomatoes. That's, it's a false uh, rationalization. What we're talking about doing is completely pricing the United States out of manufacturing and agriculture operations through this uh, overreach of government. And that's the good parts of it. Yeah, no, it is. It's a frightening bill. And, and this brings me to the, to the next point, uh, Senator Tillis. You mentioned this PRO Act, which is nothing less than a, a devastating uh, impact on right to work laws at the state level. It'll, it'll allow uh, the loss of privacy for employees as their information, their email addresses, and their, their individual phone numbers will be handed over for union organizers to to use without their permission, snap union elections that take away the secret ballot from folks when they're determining whether or not to join a union. So much there. Now, normally, uh, under the traditions of the Senate, it would take 60 votes 
to be able to pass something like this. There's no way that they have 60 votes, no question about that in the Senate. Uh, but there is a great deal of pressure building on the far, far left among some of these uh, very liberal senators, Dick Durbin from Illinois, et cetera, uh, to just do away with the filibuster. And, and frankly, to cram uh, a, a really far left agenda uh, without any respects for, you know, for, for the, the rights of a very closely divided country. Senator Tillis, could you give us a sense of where you believe this filibuster stands, which protects you know, the rights of the minority in this country, uh, especially how important it is when it's a closely divided country? Can you talk about that and also where you think that situation is? I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Tim. I have to start. There have probably been some friends of mine at uh, Americans for Prosperity that may have been uh, supporting the President Trump initiative for us to do the legislative nuclear option. I signed a letter, and, and I've told people repeatedly that the day Republicans uh, pull the nuclear option on the legislative calendar is the day that I resigned from the Senate. This is very, very important to protect the rights of the minority. And I did that when it was hard. I did it when everybody was saying, now's the time to do it. But you have to look, you can't think in, in terms of a two-year Congress. You have to think, take a look at decades and a century. Um, if they, the reason I, I pulled something out of my pocket is I'm carrying around a pocket card and I, I asked my staff, I said, let's get the top 10 things that would happen if they, if they did the nuclear option. Um, the Equality Act, H.R. Uh, 1, basically destroying states' rights for election laws. Um, Let's see, the George, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is basically going to be or devastating to law enforcement. The PRO Act, uh, the enhanced background checks uh, uh, for Second Amendment, basically destroying Second Amendment rights. Uh, uh, I, I could go down a long list, but the reason I have this pocket card is I'm going to members on the other side of the aisle and saying, it, you may be getting pressure right now to uh, respect the institution, respect the rights of the minority, as I did a couple of years ago. But this is the list that Schumer is going to come to you and pressure you to pass because they're going to still need every single one of those people who are worried or concerned, and there are on the Democratic side some who are concerned. They need to understand if they think pressure for the nuclear option is tough, I went through it, survived, got reelected. Think about what it looks like when you're going to be asked to come and now enable them to pass these uh, overreaches of, of historic, unprecedented proportions. Yeah, and I, re I remember well what you're talking about, Senator Tillis. There were those voices urging Republicans, Mitch McConnell, folks like you, to, to end the filibuster and, and to pass a lot of legislation. And frankly, it's a lot of legislation that we would have liked at Americans for Prosperity, and you would have as well. But it's so important to remember that if you're ever going to have a country that's more united, more together, that you can't just completely disregard the rights of a minority. And I, I think about in a country that is so closely divided right now, 50-50 in the Senate, only a five-seat or so margin in the House, a presidential race that was incredibly close, state legislative and gubernatorial elections across the country that were very close. Now is the last time uh, or the least time that you would want to simply say, you know what, I know the country is closely divided, but we're not going to look for consensus. To heck with that. We're simply going to pass uh, an extreme agenda, even with this razor close majority. It, it's a bad idea if Republicans are in charge, and we've said that and you've said that, 
It's also a bad idea if Democrats are in charge. And so we're going to, as an organization, urge senators to respect uh, the rights of the minority, to, to look for consensus in this country before we take enormous legislative steps, like, for example, some of the things this, the PRO Act is what I think of. So thank you for standing for that. I, I just want to comment, but Chris, go ahead. I know you've got the next question. No, I, you know, and I, I, I think it's, it's vitally important. Uh, I know you took a stand back in, um, in a time whenever you were having to take fire on this. And to Tim's point, it's, it's critical for um, how we move forward as a country. So, um, uh, you know, you mentioned HR1 as well in that list that you went down through, um, which is a significantly impactful um, piece of legislation uh, that has far reaching uh, consequences beyond just simple election law changes, uh, right down to how nonprofits and other organizations do business um, going forward and stifling free speech in, in different ways. Um, talk a minute about the impact that you see HR1 having, um, you know, in not only future elections, but how we transact, um, you know, business on the federal level as well. Well, I think if you, if you take a look at H.R. 1, some of it, the constitutional scholars would say is, is patently unconstitutional. Uh, but I don't necessarily want to rely on the Supreme Court to make that judgment. One example is basically taking the rights of states to determine the districts and making that a part of a commission that is then where there's any uh, legal challenge, it's in the DC circuit court versus running through whatever circuits the states may be if you have a difference on redistricting. It is legalizing ballot harvesting nationwide. It is allowing voting locations to be set up at a prison to allow prisoners to vote. It's allowing anybody before their rights have been restored to remove all of those kinds of exceptions. It's federally, eliminating the need to ever have an ID to prove that you say you are who you are. It's ballot boxes unsupervised at various locations to aid the ballot harvesters. And uh, there's a very long list of overreaches in this bill. Now again, the marketing park department over in the, uh, on the Democrat side did a good job making this about civil rights. This is about voter integrity. We've even had a lot of people on the other side of the issue. There was a column I read earlier this week that said, if this bill were to pass and become the law of the land before the next election, it would be national chaos. Um, and I think that they're right. Uh, all that's at stake, none of that's at stake if we keep the 60 vote threshold. All of that's at stake if we lose it. No, that, that's exactly right. Um, I, I think about HR1 and, you know, I look at election night, Senator Tillis, and, you know, Florida had close elections, 11 million people voting. North Carolina had close elections. You were involved in a close election, others. But your state had state laws uh, in place that allowed a, a fair and impartial counting of the ballots in the end. Uh, and that's going to be done away with. And you're going to have a standard from Washington, D.C., and sadly, our elections would look like California or New York, which take often weeks and weeks simply to do the first count. This is after a lot of the ballot harvesting occurs that you mentioned. This bill, ladies and gentlemen, also 
uh, really harms the First Amendment free speech rights that you have as Americans as well. So it's, it's a lot of that as well. I know a lot of folks are watching. If you want to make your voice heard to your two United States senators and to your House member on the filibuster especially, or really any of these issues we're talking about, there's a link in this piece that's called I Volunteer. I Volunteer. I Vol. Click on that. You can make your voice heard. It's a big moment for the country. And you want to make sure that your senators and House members hear from you. I would urge you to do that. It literally takes you about a minute. And, and Senator Tillis, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you or, or let you comment on this. You know, a lot of times I talk to people who go, hey, I know how my senators are going to vote. They don't need to hear from me again. Or, you know, I, I know that my senator's not with me. And why do I want to waste my time or my House member? But give them a sense of why it's important when a senator or a House member hears from folks back home on an issue. Well, for two reasons. I mean, number one, if you're supporting the position that we're going down, you know, we like to we not like to validate that by hearing uh, from our constituents. Number two, if if uh, you may have a concern, you know, for example, let's say somebody had a concern with the filibuster when President Trump wanted to do the filibuster. I would explain why that was not good for the country. We may have to agree to disagree. But that engagement's important. Tim, there are instances I'm not somebody that comes up here has made a decision that won't change it. Um, when I hear from people and they give me a different perspective, uh, other than what I've used to arrive at a position, I take that in. And I don't call that flipping. I call that using the best available information to make the most informed decision. And you do that through engagement. You do that by having people contact their congressmen, contact their senators, contact everybody at every level. Contact the governor and tell them to open up the damn state. Uh, those are all things that we need to do. And it happens at the grassroots level, and you all are the best at doing that. And we need more people engaged, uh, more people informed, and I completely support everything that you all do. And I, I absolutely appreciate the many friends that I have at AFP back in North Carolina. Absolutely. And so, ladies and gentlemen, click that I Volunteer link. Make your voice heard. Uh, it's a big moment for the country. Uh, and, and a lot is on the line. So make your voice heard to your United States senators. Senator, last question to you, and we'll let you go back to your important work on the Hill there. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier, it's a big moment for the country. We've got enormous challenges. Some of them are legislative and policy battles that we've got to try to win. Others are just this pandemic and the things we're facing in the country today. I've gotten to know you over the years. I know you're an optimistic person. Give us a sense of why, despite these challenges and, and, and what we face as a nation, you're still optimistic about this country of ours and about the direction we are, we're going to take. I'm absolutely optimistic. I think if we hold together, uh, we may end up uh, taking a few shots uh, in this bout. But I think at the end of the day, America continues to be the greatest nation on the planet. Um, still, there's I'm going down to Texas tomorrow. There's a reason why people are, are risking their lives to come to this country. They need to do it legally, but because they know what we do. Um, we love this country. Uh, we've all been given great opportunities, and most of those opportunities will be there. If we can just stay focused, keep voters engaged, keep volunteers engaged, make people know what's at stake. We're already seeing through the dialogue with the crisis at the border, hearts are changing. People understand that we need to secure a border. We need people to voice their concerns about this overreach for taxes, the overreach for election laws, the overreach for the Second Amendment. 
um, the overreach for allowing labor unions to uh, to organize. Now is the time. I know it was exhausting last year. I was in a race, but I suited up the next day and I'm back in the fight. Everybody's had plenty of time to rest. It's time to fight again because this nation's future is at stake and we need to fight tooth and nail for the greatest nation that's ever existed. Well said. You were hearing from Senator Tom Tillis from the great state of North Carolina. Senator, uh, best of luck on an important trip down to the border tomorrow to examine the situation there. Uh, for Chris McCoy, our state director of Americans for Prosperity in North Carolina, and myself, Tim Phillips, I'm president of AFP. Stay in the fight, ladies and gentlemen. It's an important moment for the country. What you and I do right now, it matters, and it's going to matter for a long time for those we love, our families. Good afternoon, everybody. Bye-bye. God bless.